Good morning. The temple and two witnesses. A group of kids were playing basketball in the gym one afternoon. Off in the corner, there was an elderly janitor who was patiently waiting for the game to end. As he sat there, he was reading the Bible. Well, the kids finished up, and one of the kids noticed what he was reading, and he walked over to the gentleman and said, Sir, what what are you reading? Well, I'm reading the Bible, he answered. He goes, I understand that, but what book? And he answered the book of Revelation. To which the kid responded, I heard that book is very hard to understand. Do you understand what it says and what it means? And he said, yes, I do. So the kid said, well, what is it? He said, Jesus wins. Now, when I approach this t- uh, particular text, chapter 11, I really found out that this is considered perhaps the most difficult chapter in the book, possibly of the entire book of uh, books of the Bible, that's very difficult for any preacher, or expositor, or communicator to dive into. And there is a wide diversity of viewpoints regarding this text. And we can literally spend hours chasing each one. However, our goal this morning is to try to get to the substance or to the point of the text. Now remember, the goal of the entire book of Revelation is to give glory to and exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look to chapter 11, we are reminded that God always has his witnesses. There always is a remnant, even in a time of great wickedness and absolute rebellion, which we read about in our text this morning. Look back at verse 1. There was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. Literally, that word translated rod is reed. The Greek word is kalamos or kalamos. And it refers to a relatively common reed that is found in the marshy areas of Israel, the Jordan River Valley. It would grow up to 15 feet easily, but in rare cases it would go as high as 18 to 20 feet. And it was used when a means of a more precise measurement could not be found. So what would you do? You would take this reed and you would hold it up to something that was about the length that you wanted. Perhaps you would measure from here to there. You'd hold the reed up to it. You would mark it. And then you would chop it off. And you'd take that rod everywhere you went. And that would be a consistent measurement as you went about. Interesting that reed was hollow. And they also used it to write with. So that's what's given to him. And we look back in verse 1. He is told to get up and measure the temple of God the altar, and those who worship in it. Now, measurement served different purposes in biblical times. Of course, it was used to measure how big something was or how big a room may be or how high a roof might be. 
but more often than other times, it serves as a device for indicating divine action. Sometimes that divine action would be the judgment of God. For example, Amos chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. So the plumb line, the cornerstone, which which the whole building will be lined up to. So you want that thing perfect. If you take that plumb line, you measure it out to make sure everything else was straight, aligned to it. And he's talking about a plumb line, a judgment, because they were not staying true to the cornerstone, which, of course, is God. Now, other times, measurement may indicate God's protection, as in this case in our passage. Notice that he is told not to measure the outer court. Some translations are under that Gentiles or nations. It's ethnos in the Greek. It means ethnicity is where we get our English word from. So it could be translated Gentiles or nations. But in this case, because he's writing to Jews, it's best translated Gentiles. Now, the first issue that comes up for discussion is what temple is he talking about? Well, the first temple that was built by Solomon was destroyed back in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. The second temple, often referred to as the Temple of Herod, was built between 520 to 515 B.C. and it was destroyed by Titus in 70 A.D. In fact, the Wailing Wall, as referred to, as you see in Israel today, is considered the last remaining wall. If you notice, Orthodox Jews will go in, they're walking back and forth, they're praying, they write their prayers down in little scrolls, and they roll it up, they put it inside the blocks that are so tight, and they keep rocking, they never turn their back, because if they turn their back on the wall, they believe they're turning their back on God. Most scholars believe that Revelation was written in 95, or perhaps 96 AD. Now, could this be the temple, the temple of Herod? Well, think about it. It was destroyed in 70 A.D., book of Revelation, 95 A.D. That's only 25 years from the time of destruction to the time Revelation was written. So the Jews, the original recipient of this book, would read it, and they would still have memories of that temple, probably precious memories of that temple, And they would think on that, and that would not be out of the scope of John to make that reference. Some say the temple is a reference to the temple we read about in chapter 11, verse 19. That tells us that the temple of God, which is in heaven, was open. There is a difference here because the temple he's measuring is right in close proximity, but this heaven in chapter 11 is being coming down and opened by God. And if it's coming out of heaven by God, why else? Why would you leave the Gentiles out there? It wouldn't be necessary. Some say it's a reference to the temple of Ezekiel, described in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. Some go, well, maybe it's just a symbolic and not a literal temple. But this is where I fall. I think it's a new temple that's going to be built prior to or during the first half Of the tribulation. As you read in Revelation, the Antichrist will go into the temple and declare himself to be God. 
the desolation of absolution that's mentioned in Daniel will be fulfilled there. That's my personal viewpoint. I believe it's going to be a new temple. Bear with me. It's going to take a, just a small bit of your time, but you need to hear this. As they've been digging around Jerusalem, you know civilizations built upon themselves, right? And they've been digging around. There's a lot of stuff in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been conquered so many times. Around the Wailing Wall, they have found Roman coins on the bottom of it, which would be highly unlikely because why would Roman coinage be there if that was the temple? Well, they actually found the original Pool of Siloam, and it's south of the temple. So the theory goes, perhaps the Temple Mount is down there near the Pool of Siloam because water was so important for worship in the temple. That's where Left Behind series got started in that work, is that in the book they propose that the Temple Mount is a little further away because the Dome of the Rock is there. Muslims control that. The Dome of the Rock where Muhammad supposedly rose up, went up into heaven. Well, see, if they can build that temple away from that, they'll be able to build a temple. And if you don't know this already, there's some Jews over there in Israel that are waiting for the day. They have people trained in the Levitical priesthood, been studying up, trace their lineage back as best they can, and they're ready to start the sacrificial system again. Which brings me to my third point. If it's a temple out of heaven, why is there an altar of sacrifice? It would not be necessary because... Jesus is the final sacrifice once and for all. And one more point I like to make. There's two words that are translated temple in the New Testament. One is naos, which we see in this text. It refers only to the holy place, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and then the court of Israel. Where the other word was herion, which refers to the entire temple complex that includes the outer courts a whole thing but only the naos is being used here i say all that to say this i believe and my best understanding that this temple is going to be built right prior to or during the first three and a half years of tribulation so let me warn you if you hear anything on the news about them getting ready to build the temple anytime soon hold on we're closer than what we think we really are. Looking back into our text in verse 3, our attention is turned to these two witnesses. He says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses clothed in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is a traditional sign of mourning in the ancient Near East, and that indicates somewhat of the message they're going to bring. Look how they're described in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, that stand before the Lord of the earth. And with that additional description, people look back to Zechariah 4. Because in that passage, Zechariah sees two olive trees and one lampstand, not two. So they look at that in the, in the similarity here. And in Zechariah 4, Zerubbabel is the silver leader and Joshua is the high priest of chapter 3 in Zechariah. They are olive trees that are producing light for the lampstand. So people say perhaps this is Zerubbabel and Joshua as revealed in Zechariah. However, you go back and read Zechariah in context, the, the action of the two witnesses does not correspond to the actions of Zerubbabel and Joshua 
as revealed in Zechariah. However, there is a connection to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 14. Look what it says. These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. That's similar, if not the same description, that we find of these two witnesses in verse 3 of chapter 11. Some say these two witnesses are Enoch and Elijah, based on verse 6. They have the power to show up the sky so the rain will not fall. Sounds like Elijah when he prayed. And James says that he was a righteous man. He prayed and rain did not fall. They also say Enoch and Elijah because Enoch was walking one day and boom, he was with the Lord. You see that in Genesis chapter 5 verse 25. And Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 11 was taken up in a fiery chariot. So people say, well, they have skipped physical death in Hebrews 9.27 state that it's pointing for one, for man to die once and then to judgment. So they have to die. Well, that argument falls apart when we consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Kind of puts a dent in that argument. Some say they, they are Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets. Like Elijah, they shut up the sky so it does not rain. But if you look in verse 6, it says they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every plague. Sounds like Moses. They're in the plagues of Egypt. But Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So they're pointing to that as a prophecy. But in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Listen to what Jesus says. If you are willing to accept that John himself is Elijah who is, who is to come. So he said Elijah, I mean, excuse me, John the Baptist was a, the uh, prophecy of Elijah that came true. Now I probably lost a lot of you going through all that. But it's important to keep track of it all. And may I say, there is an outline available. I make available every week. And this is what Table Talks for because some of this I feel like we need to talk about. It's out there. But there's no way I can really dive into it all in a short amount of time. Now, I agree with the next case. Some people say it's impossible to identify these witnesses, to have a precise identity of who these two witnesses are. There is really no need why we need to know their names. Apparently, in the text, God didn't think it was important for us to know who they are, rather than to focus on what they did and what happened. They're anointed by God, and he empowers them to do the work. Once again, going back to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So they're receiving their power from God. God's the one who's anointing them and empowering them. You have to keep that in mind as we walk through the rest of the text. Look what it says in verse 5. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out from their flows out of their mouth, and devours or consumes their enemies. Apparently, their message is going to hit instant resistance. Because he tells us if anyone's going to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth, and if they're going to try to harm them, they will consume their enemies, and he must die this way, the people who are against them. Now, this is a timely reminder for us that no matter how gentle or sensitive the truth is, may be, 
A world that loves darkness rather than light will never be the willing recipient of the truth. The urge to repress, if possible, to eliminate those who bring such a message is always there. But in this case, he says, if anyone attempts to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and will consume or devour their enemies. And just in passing, you look at the Bible, how oftentimes God's message is rejected, and so are the messengers. In fact, you can even look at the testimony of Jesus himself. He was not well received. He died for what he taught. Of course, he died for our salvation. But it shouldn't surprise us, no matter how gentle and sensitive we may present the gospel or the truth, which is the same thing, gospel is truth, that's not going to be rarely received a lot of times. Not so much in the world. We expect it from the world, but don't be surprised and rejected inside the house of God. If you want to do some homework, you want to call it that, watch some of the contemporary preaching on TV. Not all of it, but some of it. And see what their preaching lines up to the Word of God. No one is standing up and saying, you are wrong. It's met with applause and amens. Always check me, dearly beloved, to make sure that I'm sticking to the text. Look at verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss, bottomless pit, will make war with them and overcome them. He will conquer them. He will overpower them and kill them. Of course, the abyss, the bottomless pit, carries nothing than evil connotation or evil intention. It's often referred to as demonic or the evil place. And this evil is loosed on the earth. In chapter 9, we read about the fifth trumpet. Now, this beast is not identified with Satan because it will be identified later with the dragon. It's to be identified with the Antichrist, the dark figure that's infatuated by the work of these two witnesses. Notice they are killed, but only after they are finished with their testimony. God allowed them to be killed only after they were done. And we see in verse 8 that their dead bodies will lie in the street. The public square, if you will. The body for the Jews was a creation of God, although it was weakened by sin. It's a creation of God. So the body needs to be treated with respect and dignity. But they would allow these two to be buried. The bodies laid there. We read about it in the text for three and a half days. What happens? Decay. Decay sets in the moment you die. Your physical body starts to decay. It's not very nice, not very pretty. But that's also very disrespectful. That's why you see a lot of things at funerals. What we do is we try to be respectful and treat the body with dignity because that is a creation of God. Jews, especially back in those days, would bury as soon as they could to put the body so no one would have to observe the decay. Now here comes a very surprising part. Look in verse 8. What street are they lying in? 
Look what he says. Of the great city which spiritually. Now, I read mystically. Some translations will say prophetically. Some will say figuratively. But literally in the Greek, it's spiritually. I think that is the best translation. It's called Sodom and Egypt. Now, in case you're wondering what city it is, look what else he says. Where also their Lord was crucified. That has to be Jerusalem. Now, think about that for a minute. John, like most Jews of his day, will refer to Jerusalem as a holy city, a sacred city. But now he's calling them spiritually like Sodom and Egypt. You remember Sodom? The evilness, the wickedness, the absolute more corruption they had. In Egypt, of course, the slavery that they endured and the degradation of the Egyptian culture upon them. And this is how John is referring to the holy city of Jerusalem. He's calling you spiritually dead. Why would he say that? Because they are rejecting the message of God. Jerusalem rejected who Christ was. And now they're rejecting these two witnesses and their message. They are spiritually Dead and spiritually compared to, to Sodom and or Egypt. Dr. Patterson, one commentary I look at, put it this way. That's perhaps one of the most uh, controversial statements in the entire chapter that a Jew would refer to the city of Jerusalem in that matter. Look what he says next. The picture don't get much better. So you have these two witnesses. It hasn't rained for the whole time they're prophesying. After they're finished, this beast rises up from the bottomless pit, kills them. They let the bodies lie in the street. And look at verse 10. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. This celebration results in people gloating over them. But only that, look back at verse 10. Not only would they celebrate... They're going to send gifts to one another. Yeah, you can imagine the frustration they must have felt when there was no water. It didn't rain, and the water was turned to blood. That would be a worldwide drought for three and a half years. Not to mention all the various other plagues. It says in the text they could call any plague as they wanted. Now, this is very important to pay attention to. All of this that had happened was blamed on the witnesses, on those two men. Rather than being discerned as part of the overall judgment of God. They thought when the witnesses were dead, things would go back to the way they were. They did not listen to their message. But you have to understand something. The witnesses did announce certain plagues on the earth. They were preachers of morality. They were against a system of morality. They opposed ruled views. And they opposed violations of the laws and purposes of God. Dearly beloved, when you go against someone's worldview and accept the system of morality, you're going to hit resistance. And we are Christians. We have a Christian worldview, which is a direct opposite of what's being promoted 
in our society. Our system of morality in America? Are you kidding me? Have you looked around? That is not what the Bible teaches, what's promoted in our movies and our TV shows. And when you stand against that, and you are faithful to the message of God, you're going to hit resistance. It may pay with it with your own life. There they are, they're celebrating, they're having, I want you to put this in mind, these people are celebrating. And they're sending gifts to one another. You know what first popped in my mind? It's not a good analogy, but I thought of Christmas. They're so happy, they're giving gifts, ooh, they're dead! Or maybe the Wizard of Oz, ding dong, the witch is dead. I mean, I just imagine these people are so excited, they're celebrating. These are not my words, look at the text, that's what they say happens. But look at verse 11. Uh Uh-oh. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. As these people were celebrating, someone looked over after three and a half days. Because their body is laying in the public view now. They're in the street. Hey, they're breathing. Uh Uh-oh. And the text says they stood on their feet. And verse 11, because they saw that, great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Because they knew the way they they handled their message, the injustice of their martyrdom, how they put indignity and disrespect on their bodies, let them lay there for everybody to see. They were fearful about what is going to happen. And in verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. Now we're not... The text doesn't tell me if apparently John heard it or the two witnesses heard it or everybody heard it. I don't know. But that's not the point. They go up to heaven in the cloud. And everybody's watching this go down. Now, do you remember how Jesus went up? Sounds like a similar way, doesn't it? He went up in the cloud and the disciples stood there, right? I don't know how to explain this, but their mouth, there he goes. And the angel had come, well, you guys still standing here. Go do what he tells you to do. And I can imagine these people all standing around, like Dr. Patterson said, stupefied, watching this happen. These people who had testified for three and a half years, they, the beast killed them and they were celebrating. Now they're raised up from the dead. They're going into heaven. Now look at verse 13. In that hour... There was a great earthquake. 7,000 people were killed. As they're looking up, watching this, then an earthquake happens and 7,000 were killed on the spot. Now, interesting here. Different translations do different things here. 7,000 people. But literally in the Greek, names of men. That's the word anthropos. We get our... English word, anthropology, study of man. So it could be translated, you know, like we say all mankind. Similar here, but you can also translate it people. What I'm getting at, that they knew the names of these people. They were known. People knew who they were. Possibly people of significance within the city. They were killed. Probably, we're not told in the text, they could... Be somewhat influential on the celebration that took place. We just don't know. Now, can you imagine that? People looking up. I mean, just imagine these two witnesses. All the plagues, the drought. They're raised from the dead. They, they go up and then an earthquake happens. It tells us in verse 
13, the rest were terrified, the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. It may have been led to repentance and salvation on the part of some, or maybe nothing more than rebellious people acknowledging what's happened. Even the Bible tells us that on that day, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of the Father. We're not quite sure. But they gave glory. Now, what can be said of this text for us today? We don't know exactly what the message was or witnesses. We can speculate. But they didn't listen. There's one thing I want you to pay very close attention to. You've heard this so many times, but please listen carefully. In this whole thing with the two witnesses, God does not hold the two witnesses accountable for the decisions of the people. He brings them into his presence after their faithful witness. He never condemns them because people fail to respond to their message. He doesn't hold them accountable. And, and let me tell you something. When you witness to somebody, you're not accountable for what they do with it. You're accountable for being faithful to the message, to tell them the truth. Now, we need to have the love of God in our heart. We don't want them to die. But we're responsible for bringing the message. And in passing, I want to remind each one of us that in our society today, everybody wants to pass the buck. You ever seen it on these talk shows or if you watch the news, they have one person on one side of the screen and one other and they point out something they did wrong, and instead of saying, no, I didn't do that wrong, I did it right, they point, well, he did so-and-so, well, uh, President so-and-so did this, well, President so-and-so did that. And they're dancing all around the issue, but not getting to the root point of the whole thing. We can never, 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 never justify our own behavior or what we say, what we do by the actions or inactions of somebody else. You'll have to stand before God and give an account for yourself. Period. End of sentence. Now I do care what happens to other people. But we have to lose this mentality about looking at other people to justify ourselves. Well I won't go to church down there. A bunch of hypocrites. Well guess what? I am too. Because I, I profess one thing. Do I fall short? Of course I do. I'm a human being just like the rest of you. You ever notice how we try to justify ourselves everything? And to go along with it, the, the top reason why people don't witness to people, what, what's the one top thing people give that they don't like going out witnessing to people? They feel the rejection. I know of us like to be rejected. Do you like to be rejected? No. But when they're rejecting the message, they're not rejecting you or me, they're rejecting Christ. And when that happens, you know the proper response must be we need to either write then and there or go home to our prayer closet where we pray and drop to our knees and pray for the individual because we don't want them experiencing eternity in hell and we'll be nice to them we'll reach out to them but they're not rejecting you they're rejecting the message we are called to be a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ and leave the results up to him.
you may end up dying for your faith. And it shocks me to say this to you, but it may happen here in the United States of America one day. And should we ask to sit down and be quiet? It's happening now, but more subtle ways. Those two witnesses that God raised up for three and a half years, they witnessed and they preached and they talked. No one listened. Do not be surprised that's going to happen to you. You're going to be rejected. But I want to challenge you with something, some practical application. If you have a pen or a piece of paper in front of you, or you can put it to memory, I want you to think of somebody. It could be a, a, a family member. It could be a friend. It could be a coworker. Somebody who is lost. Somebody who even make a point to come up to you and try to poke at you to see how far they can push you before you may say something or do something that's not Christ-like. I want you to write that person's name down. And just in a moment, I want you to pray to God for this person. Ask God to soften their heart that they may hear the good news. Not only hear it, but listen to it and apply it. And that God would give you an opportunity for a verbal witness to that person one-on-one. Don't pray unless you mean it. And I'm gonna, the invitation is not just for people coming forward, coming to Christ. Which if you haven't done that, I invite you to do that here in just a moment. Let's also come down and lay our petitions before the Lord's feet. Now, we don't have a sacrificing altar up here where we slaughter animals. For, oh, Jesus was a one-time sacrifice once and for all. But we call this sometimes an altar because this is where we lay down our lives and our, everything we have to God. I'm not looking for a bunch of people down here kneeling and praying. This is not my reason for doing this. But my question is, how far are you willing to go? Would you be willing to come down here? Cry out to God. Not only for your personal walk, but for this person you're praying about. That these people will hear the message before it's too late. The end is coming. And it's coming quickly. We're going to the next, the final trumpet. Then we have the bowls of wrath. I don't know about you, but this last few series of sermons have really put the fear of God in me. To know that I have a good friend or a family member. And I, I know what the, I have what they need, and yet because of fear, I don't give them the message. When I'm driving at Ask God to use other people, but put yourself out there too. Say, God, use me any way you see fit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.
Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation. All of us know at least one, if not more, people that need to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we know time is short. And Father, our heart cries that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. Father, forgive us for making excuses. We have nothing to fear, for you are with us, and you promise never to leave us nor forsake us. Your Holy Spirit will guide us in the words that we need to use. Father, give us discernment. Give us wisdom. Give us courage. Stand and speak the truth before it's everlasting too late. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?